0: The host of this show, Max Naist, lived in addiction for years and made lots of destructive choices, which resulted in losing friends, family, and his career. After being in jail for the fourth time, he knew he needed to make some big changes. Now, sober for 17 years, he shares the steps he took, which led to recovery and got his life back. Welcome to Fearless Happiness. 19.7 million American adults have battled a substance use disorder. 38% of adults have battled an illicit drug use disorder, but no matter what the struggle, no matter the challenge, you can overcome anything and become successful. Max and his guests share experience, strength, hope, and faith If it's PTSD or military-related, trauma, physical, verbal, sexual addiction, alcoholism, you can accomplish your dreams. And with this show, we help others be fearless in their pursuit of happiness. This is Fearless Happiness, and this is Max Naist. All right, good
1: afternoon, good evening, or good morning, wherever you are in this world. This is Max from the Fearless Happiness Podcast, and today I got a very special guest. At least he's very special to me. I had the privilege of working with this gentleman a few years back because we were in the same line of business, of helping people, helping people overcome their addiction. And so I got to uh, meet and get to know this guy for about a year. Uh, but he'll tell you, that place we worked out together nearly killed us all because of the overload of work they used to give us. And uh, yes, I'm going to kill these dogs. Anyway, part of the recording, don't mind the dogs in the background, everybody. But yeah, this gentleman, and I'm going to have him introduce himself. So what I have uh, my guest do, Pez, is introduce introduce yourself and let the audience know who you are and what it is you do exactly, or what it is you do. Yeah.
2: Okay. So thank you, Max, first of all, for having me on your podcast. Uh, You know, it's it's an honor and privilege to be in your presence, let alone to be on your podcast. (laughs) So, So you're a good old friend. There's a lot of things I do. I mean, so I'm a... 15-plus years sober, 15 years in a few months. And um, I own some sober livings. And I also am a, an, I'm an interventionist. Uh, I'm a drug and alcohol and mental health interventionist. I am a professional interventionist. I've been doing this for quite some time now, a lot of years. And then on top of that, I also uh, I do a lot of coaching recovery coaching family coaching i do uh family coaching in the iranian community persian community because i am persian i got sober in an iranian recovery center so i know the language i know the uh, i know the way to talk to these parents uh, not all of them listen but definitely there are some that are on board with with recovery and trying to help their kids because it is a family dynamic and a family disease that uh that makes a person an addict it's not just the addict or alcoholic themselves Yeah, then the sober livings are very structured homes. They are uh, all men's house. Uh, All of the men are in the recovery process, uh, work in the 12 steps. Uh, We have some mental health cases and then some dual diagnosis cases too that come to us. And then I also have a women's house that's primarily women. There is a LGBTQ friendly. So we do have uh, some people that are in transition, uh, transgender. Both of the houses are in South Orange County. I live in both uh, Orange County and LA because a lot of my work as far as interventions and things like that are uh, spread out all throughout Southern California and nationally on a national level. And then on top of that, too, I have a recovery podcast. It's called Pej's Recovery Corner. I have a very strong presence on TikTok. That's Pej Interventions. And then on YouTube, too, Pej the Addiction Interventionist. That's my YouTube channel. So I'm always active and always busy and filming lots and spreading awareness. We're Doing some other special things coming up soon here filming some documentaries and and actually like a a tv series that's coming out soon hopefully god willing if 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 these producers can pitch this pilot to the network and we get the show i don't see why they shouldn't because it was really good but we just filmed more recently so i'm busy i'm always busy
1: i know and he's not kidding every time i turn on my phone there's pez and but that's (laughs) we learned that long time ago right because in our line of work it's it's never a dull moment, right, Pej? And we're always, right especially when it comes to helping people overcome their addiction. And and like I said, Pej and I worked together at this facility that I thought that was the first time in my career that I almost left because it was just out of control craziness. And um, mm-hmm. but thank God I had Pej and some other people that we could all bounce things off of, and, and we got through that tough time. And we're all still here today, you know, and. and so yeah, Pej, fifteen. I know you just celebrated uh, your anniversary or your birthday not too long ago, right?
2: Yeah, in June I turned fifteen years sober. June sixteenth, two thousand and seven nice. was my sobriety date. So fifteen nice. years
1: I put together. Well, you know they say, like you yeah. said, if God willing, I make it to next Tuesday, I'll celebrate nineteen.
2: <laughs> I you know? know you. You actually, I just I noticed that somewhere. I I, I think I have it in my phone that Max's uh, sobriety birthday is coming up here soon. <laughs> So and, and, and as the old and as the old timers used to tell me, not if you make it, when right. you make it to next Tuesday.
1: That's right, because they always say God's willing. I hear people say that, but I always go, God's always willing. It's us if we're willing, right? God we have always to be willing. willing. And uh, That's right. you know what I mean. God has That's blessed right. me with some great friends like Pej here, and and without further ado, Pej, I want to get into your story, right? I want the audience to know some of the challenges you faced, right? when in your act of addiction and, and what brought you to become an addiction, you know, an addiction interventionist, mental health interventionist and, and counselor. So give my audience, you know, the lowdown, as they say, on how did it start? What do you believe was the cause of your addiction? And, and then how did you overcome that?
2: Okay. So in short, you know, being a, a Persian kid, Iranian kid that was born in Germany and, lived there for the first five years of my life. But then, you know, I went to Iran for a minute, just like six months. But then we, we pretty much landed in Salt Lake City, Utah. So being a Muslim Iranian kid in a very predominantly white area that was very Mormon, majority of people were Mormon, I always felt different. I always felt uncomfortable in my skin. I, um, I I started to take little shots of alcohol here and there as a youngster. That was stuff that my dad would give me when he was drinking with his friends on the weekend, um, whether it was cognac or beer. You know, I, I just took it like it was just fun. But I do remember like thinking at the age of twelve. I, I remember like being in in a class and somebody talking about huffing uh, glue, sniffing glue to get high. And you know, I, my curiosity struck like almost immediately. So I definitely would sniff the glue and sniff the white out even though they said that's really dangerous but right. but um but I took it to the next level at the age of 12 I was mowing lawns this one summer and I found myself out inside of a shed um huffing gas because I knew that it had fumes and the fumes could get you high if the if the fumes of the glue can get you this high I'm sure the fumes of the gasoline or the paint or whatever can get you much higher so I was huffing gas at a very young age and and um I did that you know for a little bit of time until I accidentally fell asleep and And poured the gasoline on my genitalia, and then I woke up and I thought, "Oh my God, I don't want to do that. That hurts a lot. I just (laughs) burnt my 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 skin." I did go to a Persian wedding when I was twelve years old, and although I had little shots of alcohol here and there, I never really experienced like a real drunk. So it was at a Persian wedding at the age of twelve where everyone was having fun that I got blasted. I mean, I was very bored in the beginning of the night, and I couldn't wait for the night to end. But once I saw that people weren't finishing all their alcohol and they were very merry, if you will, they were very they were mingling. Persians are festive, right? They're like really super festive. So they weren't finishing all their alcohol. So I went around and, you know, finished all their alcohol for them. And suddenly I became the life of the party. I felt totally comfortable in my skin, breakdancing, pop lock and doing all kinds of moves, you know, that I didn't even know I knew how to do, right? right. <laughs> so suddenly I'm the life, the, the life of the party and um, the alcohol was, it was serving its purpose, if you will. And so, uh, and also I think during that time too, there was a few outcasts in Utah, other people that felt very different. We were congregating behind this church. It was a Mormon church behind our uh, junior high school, where we uh, went went and would smoke weed. You know, like there was weed. I think it was called like Christmas tree bud or something like that. It looked like little trees, right? But we would smoke that stuff. I also got picked on a lot. Um, there was only a, a select few people that didn't really like me because of my Iranian nationality. There was a lot of um, diplomatic problems between Iran and in the US during those times. So nice. there was this one guy that, that uh, pretty much pulverized me. He like, beat me up in front of the whole school um, so bad to where I had braces that were caught in my gums. So I, uh, I remember telling myself, like he humiliated me. Like I'll never let somebody abuse me. Or, and plus, within the home, too, there was a lot of verbal and physical abuse, too, from my dad. So growing up, I, I was always like in, in defense mode. And, right. and i didn't want anyone anyone to ever hurt me or humiliate me anymore and, and um we moved to california when i was 15 i always wanted to live in california it was like a dream of mine we ended up moving out here we'd come on vacation a lot so i was told we're moving to la but my dad must have thought that all of california was la because we didn't move to la we moved to costa mesa and i'm <laughs> like the second i the second we moved to costa mesa i I got a job on Harbor Boulevard. I was 15 and a half on a work permit flipping burgers. I was only a few days in, right? And I already met somebody that told me we could have fun that night. And he took me like to this motel called the Motor Inn, and that night I saw cocaine, that night I saw alcohol, that night I saw weed. You know, I got I, I got blasted and and by the time I made it to my house, I ran down Victoria Boulevard thinking I'm going to get in a lot of trouble cuz my parents are going to wake up when I sneak into the house, but um, I thought I was almost off scot free, but the second I got up into my bedroom, uh, my mom was sitting in my bed wide awake and they they sat me down the next day. she was really mad she said, Your dad's going to have to deal with you and they sat me down and they had that the frothy emotional appeal conversation with me like <laughs> the the right. the potential talk like you were so talented you're artistic, you were a star swimmer, you were great at baseball and basketball and and, uh, and soccer, and why are you hanging out with these people, and who are these people and We've moved to the wrong part of town, so then they they decided to send me to another school where I had to make new friends and I was turning sixteen and that was like the high school era. It was in that in that moment of my life where I thought, "Wow, everything we've seen in the movies I get to do now like so so when we get we go to these high school parties and everything, I get to get drunk there's people lined up at the keg or I already got a, a bottle of liquor that i that I got from the liquor store, however I got it right then there was um during that time, we'd go down to Mexico, we'd party down there all night long, like last no last call for alcohol, had fake IDs. But throughout my adolescence, I started experimenting with lots of things like hallucinogens. And, and then um, I had a, a buddy of mine, his name was Omid. Um, and Omid was Persian. In our language, Omid means hope, but there was no hope for Omid, right? But like, Omid was a partier like me and his dad uh, worked in the hotel industry. And so he worked long hours and had Uh, cocaine under his bed and so we were experimenting with coke at the age of 16 i'm talking like not just doing lines of it definitely i did the lines um knowing damn well like i learned about this stuff in health class in junior high that could become become highly addictive but here i am doing it right Right. but uh but also like we started to rock it up and we're smoking like freebasing cocaine at the age of 16 like this isn't normal it's like kids shouldn't be doing that right so 17 years old i had a I had gotten a car, I was sober one morning, I had partied really hard the night before. Uh, My dad gave me his hand-me-down car, I picked up all my friends, piled them all into my car, everybody got in, we're driving to school, it had rained the night before. We were just high school kids, just having, ha- having fun, right? right? The music was blaring. And I remember driving up the street, and uh, as we got towards this uh, intersection right before we could, I couldn't hit the brakes fast enough. This kid, 14-year-old kid, came out in front of my car on his bicycle, and um, I slammed on the brakes, but the kid went over the hood of my car, both his bike and his body, into the windshield. The windshield shattered, and the car kept rolling and crashed into this minivan, and the kid's body was, went headfirst over the minivan into the ground. And so uh, he didn't die right away. His mom took come off of life support about four days later. But I, it was from there where I was angry. I felt like if there's such a thing as a God, he has dealt me a bad hand. Like, why me? The right. whole school knows this, right? So I started doing a lot of things um, as a youngster. I got, I got myself into a lot of trouble. Um, I started breaking a lot of laws, uh, committing a lot of crimes. And I found my way into a juvenile detention facility. And in there, I had a meltdown that got me, um, they put me in a psych portion of this place, if you will. They thought basically I was a, a, a danger to myself based off the of things I was saying. And I really, I was, I was like, you know, threatening suicide and things like that. So because right. um, I, just, I just didn't think like this was fair. Like why would my life end up like this? And why would that kid's life end up like that? And, you know, stop believing in any kind of higher power or any kind of God. And, and during that time I got turned on to uh, the big book of AKA because they would they bring these panels. It was a guy, an old guy, right? He'd come in with a big book and just read us a big book. And I was 17. You know, I was like still hip slick and cool. I have a lot of mileage on me. So <laughs> right. I, was, I wasn't ready to receive this message, but, but a seed was planted and it, it was a weak seed, but a seed nonetheless. Right. And So when I was like, when I was in, um, so i had already been turned on to recovery a little bit at the age of 17, but unfortunately I didn't stay sober. You know, I, I didn't come out. I told myself I'm going to be good when I get out of here. But I was very influenced by my friends, right? So the second I, I get out of Juvie and go back to my school, I'm I'm greeted with blunts and joints and, and alcohol and even acid, LSD, like right before the, my, and I was going to a, a continuation school. So you know, nothing good happens in those schools, right? <laughs> right. Everybody's getting everybody everyone's getting loaded there, maybe even the teachers, right? So regardless of the fact, so that's what that's like what my lifestyle was like. And parents got divorced. Uh I was between homes for a while. Dad moved to Iran. Mom moved to l a and here I was this eighteen year old kid uh, still wet behind the ears with no home training and no guidance from a male figure um, suffering from addiction and alcoholism and I believe that a lot of it had to do with not just the trauma of the kid p- passing away but also the trauma of, of how I grew up and I think uh you know it became an ultimate excuse for me to use and drink all throughout my young adulthood all throughout my twenties, basically, I was slinging dope to nurture an addiction i was uh, frequenting ra- we didn't have friends that were f- overdosing and dying on fentanyl back then right? right we were going to raves we were doing love drugs we were doing cocaine and then meth meth entered my life and uh, that was probably around 17 18 i i got introduced to crank but then i quit for a while in my early 20s and then like a couple years and then i got back into it because you know being a drug dealer i was somebody uh, gave me this opportunity to take a lot of drugs to other states like Hawaii and make a lot of money. So I started to do that. I started getting into more trouble with the law. Into my later twenties, by the time I was thirty, I was locked up again. And then, you know, between thirty at thirty years of age, I was introduced to sober living. I um, I tried to go to meetings. I wasn't about it. I didn't know what it really meant. I would just sit there like a potted plant and wait for the time to go by. And then by the time I was 35, I was a, a homeless man living out of my car like a mutant, walking, walking the streets, uh, doing any kind of drug I could, try to get sober here and there. I'd go to people's houses and dry out on their couch. And I felt like my heart was palpitating and murmuring, like it was going to blow out of my chest because of all the meth I was doing. Right. And then my liver was hurting from the other drugs I was doing and alcohol and... um and finally, by the age of 35, I, I reached out. I did the thing that I feared the most, and that was to reach out and ask for help. And so when my mother answered, I didn't realize that she was doing her her recovery program. She had a different tone in her voice. She was a strong member of Al-Anon. Um, she didn't want to ha- help me. She talked to me a certain way. She told me I was dead to her. I told her, I can't believe you talk like that to your son, like you gave birth to me like why would you do that? Like, why would you right. say that to your son? She goes, she basically said, well, son, you haven't been alive to me since you were a little kid. I mean, you haven't been like after adolescence. I lost my son. This is a monster. Like, this isn't who I was trying to raise.
1: Right. And
2: so um, I asked her if I could get help. And she just gave me this phone number. And uh, when she gave me the phone number, I called this dude and he told me to go to this house. And then, you know, I'm giving you the fast version of this so you can get to the recovery part. I went to this house. <laughs> I had met the guy before. I met him five years before when I got out of jail, but I wanted nothing to do with him five years before. But this time, you know, I didn't know what I was getting into. So this dude, he was this little guy. His name was Sia, Sia Mack. He was a uh, Persian recovery counselor. He had like a Persian uh, recovery center. And uh, I went to truly like to make my mom happy. But I remember when I walked in, like I looked at this dude, I'm like, dude, I know you. And he goes, I don't know you. And I, went, I met you five years ago. And he said, well, I usually do remember the ones that stay. Are you ready to come in? I said, yeah. So he sent us to these meetings and the meetings were great. You know, I, I definitely made a lot of friends there. I did a lot of judging. I judged the program. And over a period of time, after being called out on my shit a couple of times, I, was, uh, I basically got to a point where I thought, you know what, Pez? You're 36 years old. You just turned 36 in rehab. Nothing's working for you in your life. You still lie like you were lying before. Like you've been to jails, you've been to institutions, you've been to you've had near death experiences. Why like what's up with you? Like you need to really do something different here. Right. And so I got, you know, I got a sponsor and he took me through the steps. And I it was the most powerful thing that ever happened to me. I I developed this relationship with a higher power, which was God. I very comfortably call it God. And um, and once I got through the process of the steps, my sponsor told me, like, he just put his hand on my shoulder one day and said, Pesh, you're six months sober. What do you think the point of the steps are? And I'm like, I'm not sure. Why don't you tell me? He goes, it says it right there. It says it in the 12th step. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to addicts and alcoholics. He goes, Pesh, where were you six months ago? I said, I wasn't well. I was homeless. I was on drugs. I was on alcohol. He goes, Okay, where are you now? I go, I'm showing up to the meeting early. I'm setting up the meeting. I'm doing my commitments. I'm making the coffee. I'm greeting people at the door. He goes, Well, it sounds like you're awakened. Sounds like a whole different person, man. You have right. a purpose now. And he said, We need you. He said, We need you. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I was needed for the right reasons, not for not for my drugs, not for my money, not for my house, not for you know right. just a good time. But That's I was right. needed for like the right purpose. So between him taking me through the steps and that guy Siamak encouraging me, because he said, When you sit in groups and you talk to people. You're really good at giving feedback, but you go right for the neck. You have no mercy. He goes, mm-hmm. you need to learn to have empathy. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even know what empathy means. And he goes, why don't you go to school? I'm like, I don't go to school. I don't want to go to school. He goes, you should go to school and become a drug and alcohol counselor. I'm like, listen, I don't do good in school. I tried going to school before, I always failed. He goes, were you loaded when you went to school before? I go, yeah. He goes, well, that's why you couldn't perform well. Yeah. He goes, why don't you try to, why don't you try to go to school sober and see what happens. So, because that dude was my samurai, and I listened to everything that he said. I mean, he helped me pay all my bills. He helped me get all my court cases dismissed or taken care of. I said, you know what? This guy's not leading me in the wrong direction. I'm going to go to school. I go to school. I finished. I finished top of my class. I'm like 4.0 student. I never had those numbers attached to my name. Made the dean's list, you know. And so, so I started um, working in the field. I worked in adolescent treatment. Then I worked in adult treatment and um it was you know be, by the time i had met you i was already probably 5 or 6 years sober i had already worked in a couple of treatment centers i was still house managing at one treatment center and so i was putting my life together and i definitely I, my get well job was working at trader joe's but i always remember thinking for the first six years of working in my recovery at Trader Joe's, I was like, I don't want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I have more ambitions than this, right? right. Like, before I wanted to, I wanted to do uh, interactive multimedia design, like, I, I probably that ship has sailed. Like, I think I want to work in recovery. So, I, I mean, I just I, I did everything I could. I learned from spiritual giants, the greatest mentors God could place in my path. And these guys just, they talked the talk, they walked the walk, they were no nonsense. They were Straight shooters. Um, some of them were former bank robbers. Some of them were former Man. homeless people that lived on the streets of you know Skid Row. And and so I was like, you know what? If these guys changed their lives, I could do it too. And um, that's why by the time I started working with you, you know, I came in as a case manager, but I hadn't even taken my exam yet. But you know, that company was, uh, I re- from what I remember, we were like a dream team. The the, the employees on the men's side. Some of those young men that were there, even the older men, they're still dear friends of mine. They stayed sober. Some of them struggled again and went back out and a couple of them died. You know, that's, that's the nature of the beast. But, but by that time, i had already worked in, in another place before that that was dual diagnosis. So firsthand, I got to experience people with mental health. And this was something like when I was going to school where I thought, I don't want to work with people with mental health. I don't want to work with people that have suicidal ideation. I don't want to, to work with a certain population that that uh you know, has a certain sexual preference, like I was so uh, conditioned to thinking that I knew what I wanted and what I needed, and by the time I worked the steps and went to school, I was taught by so many people that I have no idea who I am, and I've lost I've lost my identity for years and years, and I started finding my identity, and like I really started t- taking a liking for working with people with mental health, like it was Absolutely fascinating for me wow. to 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 talk with people coming off of Meth bender that were still experiencing psychosis. And and they fascinated me to hear the conversations and the and the things that they talked about and how their ideology, their where they were from. Often they would say that they're the Antichrist or their Jesus Christ or they're this, that, And I think, where are you from? Oh, I'm from the South. Oh, yeah. Bible Belt. Sounds like uh Sounds like they whatever, and then you All sprinkle right. some methamphetamine in the mix. Of course, the guy's going to be up for a few days and start thinking that he's here <laughs> to to be to, to be a participant in the second coming, right? But so by the time I was working with you, I realized that although that place later on gained a very bad reputation and folded, because i i left I left for a while, but then I came back, and um, I don't know what was more fascinating was watching the way that place grew or the way it dissolved, right? But I do know that while I was there, I worked with professionals like yourself and many others, who went on to branch out and work at many different facilities. There were some of the top, elite individuals that were help in the helping field, helping addicts and alcoholics. And I watched you from from a distance. I, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Max and Just. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I've all, I've all, I think that we're cut from the same cloth for sure. I think that we probably use the same types of drugs. I think that both of us were very much lost, lost on our path at one point, but, uh, but we came here to stay. We came here to help people. We came here to become awakened and we, we came here to find our purpose and we put that into effect. So, um, I think there was a break in between the time that I worked with that place with you. I went to LA to open some, uh, structured sober livings up there. right? Right. They were very, uh, middle Eastern based, uh, Uh, Persian Armenian Afghans all different types and during that time you know um the people who I was trying to work with we just we didn't jive together like it wasn't it wasn't going to work like I needed to separate myself from them immediately so I did and I started doing some life life coaching sober coaching sober companion work um and I became a live-in sober coach life coach with this one kid which was amazing it was awesome right and um it was during that time I got a sponsor who was really big in AA, but also who was really big in the recovery community. That was a, like a world renowned interventionist. You see how like God always placed people in my path throughout my journey of sobriety oh. yeah, to learn from. Right.
1: Exactly. I know exactly what you're talking about. And yeah. what I want to say is like, cause I, I'm glad I did the mental health portion first. I worked in adult mental health for three years. Than with transitional age, I think it helped me become a better substance abuse counselor when I knew when I saw both sides, like, like you said, people right. with psychosis, meth psychosis and people that, you know, with schizophrenia, right? Like I had this one kid and we would drive down the street, you know, I'm trying to get him integrated in the community just to get out. Right. And he, we drive and he'd always have this grin like this. And I knew and I'd go, hey, so and so I go, are you hearing voices? And he'd look at me and go yeah i go well i go i'm curious how do you manage that he goes this is what i do max i hear the first voice and he goes they're usually not good so i hear it and let him talk and then i go shut the fuck up next
0: (laughs) (laughs) and that's how he would just
1: keep the voices going right like he wouldn't get involved but right and you know i and like you said when i came to the facility where you and I met. And I think we had a little dream team there of the people that we're close to in the residential, you know, and yeah, it was a great experience, but you know, and we both have our I think they grew way too fast. Look what happened. Like you said, it was it was fascinating to watch how fast they grew, but how fast they dissolved, right? And we we yeah. know our reason that why that happens, right? But mm-hmm. one thing mm-hmm. that I learned from you and the other people we worked with and, and myself yeah. is we stuck to our guns, right? Yeah. We were going to take right. care of the clients the best we could, how we were taught, right? Not only from school, right? But our mentors, right? right? Our sponsors. And, and like you, yeah, I was surrounded by a bunch of good old timers that were like, you know, this is how you do it, right? right. Make sure you're the same guy when no one's looking as if you, they were right in front of you. And, and that's, that's how right. I lived my recovery right i I apply those principles in all my affairs not everybody likes the 12 steps but man you got two guys right here that could have ended up easily in prison for a long time and here we sit we're having a killer conversation i get to interview my friend pez who helps countless countless people right from a self-centered selfish you know egomaniac to a guy who's become very selfless, right? And if you go look at his TikToks and you go look at his social media, he's always trying to help some someone or people in general, right? That are trying to get sober. And And that's why I wanted to bring you on the show, Pez, because people need to hear the challenges you overcame, right? They know my story, but you're right. We we probably did the same. I did, well, I, I drank in every day that ended in Y. And if you had it, I wanted to do it. You know what I mean? It didn't Mm -hmm. matter what it was, Mm -hmm. but like you, meth was my downfall. Like that's the one that hook, line and sinker brought me to the bottom. Right. And um, yeah, the
2: stuff is the the devil's dandruff, man.
1: Exactly. You know, but here's the thing, Pez. right? Like we get sober, we get clean and then we meet, I get to meet Pez, right? Guys that like him who are out there to help people selflessly right so continue Pez like let them let them know like okay you've told your story right so let's like when was that moment you really just said like I gotta change like I'm done and here come like when did you embrace recovery like I'm gonna do this no matter what
2: my turning point was actually when I was at that recovery home the guy would do a thing uh, a psychodrama he basically had me relive the day of my car accident where the kid died. Oh, and wow. he had this, it, it was a room full of people. It was a family group. So it was all these Persian families. And he dimmed the lights and he put this 12-year-old kid on the ground and put a sheet over the kid's body and had me walk around the room and relive the day. Talk about the day. The weather that day. The smell in the air. The lemon trees. The music that was playing on the, in the car radio. What we were laughing about as kids that were going to school, just high school kids whatever I could recollect or or remember. And then he had me go and sit down and put my hand on top of this, this sheet that was on top of this kid's body. And he told me like, this is the kid you hit on the bike. I said, Oh, this is heavy. Don't do this to me. He said, no, this is the corpse of the kid. Just tell him how you feel about him losing his life. And I, I mean, I was pouring so many tears that I told him, I'm sorry that this this happened to you. I never intended for you to lose your life. So okay, I tell him what, you, what happened to your life? And I'm like, my life, I haven't had a life. I don't know what having a life is like, you know, he said, okay, so what do you want to do? You might want to make a commitment. I said, yeah, I want to make a commitment. So what do you want to commit to? I said, I want to help every single addict, alcoholic of every race, creed and color one day at a time for the rest of my life. And he said, I'm holding you to that. And I said, okay. And I looked over at my mom's face. She was sitting there in the family group pouring tears Crying and crying, and I saw my sponsor. He came that night. My sister, all my all my peers that were in rehab with me, wow. and um, and I, I remember just having this thought: like, "Paz, you need to do this. Like, you can't fuck this up, or you're gonna, you're <laughs> a real loser." And so um, the next the next day, I felt like a thousand pounds had been lifted off my back, and I, that's where I just said, "I'm going forward all the way. I'm not messing around anymore." Fast forward, you know. What was it? Seven years later, I'm up in LA. I have that sponsor. Uh, I know I learned about him, that he's an interventionist. I'd already gone on a a lot of 12 step calls, but I also went with professionals in the field to go and like talk to family members and talk to addicts and active addiction. So I had been exposed to interventions. I don't think by accident, right? God put people in my life. So I, so I could pick my, pick my, the field I wanted to, to, go after you know so um when i met this gentleman he he hired me to be uh to be in his company it was a uh intervention company right and which they also did sober companions and transports and monitoring and things like that so like i didn't know anything of what i was doing but he would say that i could come and sit down and he would teach me and i go up in his office in studio city and he would just flow he would start talking and it, it the words of wisdom that came out of this man i told him can i can i record this stuff because i don't i want to hold on to every word he said sure go ahead so i'll go on my phone and push record and i have hours and hours of this man talking and then he like gave me certain books to read and he said if you believe in yourself and you believe in a product that you're selling if it's recovery and you need to go out there and get people into recovery you're going to have a lot of doors shut in your face but you you're going to have a lot of doors that open up for you just follow my lead and I'll help you. He said, make a lot of money doing the right thing. I'm like, okay. So I started going out and uh, following his lead. And the next thing you know, I went to some intervention trainings. And then I started actually getting lots of phone calls for people that had struggling family members or loved ones. And I started going out and, and doing interventions, sometimes on my own, sometimes with another interventionist. Um, the guy was, was supervising me, not not to say that he was standing and watching, but he would, uh, I would call him with scenarios beforehand. And, um, and then he would just talk to me about the do's and don'ts and what we want to do and what we don't want to do. And so it just became, it became a way of life It became my, my profession. Like, uh, there was a lot of fear in the beginning. Like, what if I screw this up? And what I learned over the years, and especially cause I'm older now, I just turned 51 is that, um. I don't need to be afraid if I'm, if I'm coming from the heart, if I'm naturally trying to help people, I can go and naturally do my job without having to be fear-based. I did an intervention the other day on a young man who was uh, on meth. The meth cases are the hardest ones because especially if they're in psychosis, it's really hard to get through to somebody. Right. right. But, um, yeah. but I had already gone to visit this guy like seven different times because, we were trying to just work on getting him the help that he needs, but he wasn't ready for all those times. But finally I went to his house with, uh, with his brother and his mom was there and also his aunt. And this dude got so mad that he ran down these stairs and came right up to me and took a swing at me.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And in that moment, he he said, get the fuck out of my house and took a swing at me. Now I moved my head back. And uh, if I hadn't, he would have, Definitely would have hurt. That one would have hurt because he looked like he was really fierce, fierce and angry. But his brother had to hold him and he was hitting his brother. And obviously the police had to be called and, um, because he was a danger you know, to everybody. Now, what ended up hap- what ended up happening was uh, afterwards, I thought to myself, is this what I signed up for to the point where like somebody could actually, you know, beat me up? Right? right. And I thought to myself, you know what, Peggy, it ain't like you haven't been in fights in your past before, but today right. <laughs> in particular, that guy didn't hit you, and he definitely could have. Something in this, some kind of creative intelligence in this universe is looking out for you.
1: Right.
2: Something wanted you to be there to be instrumental in helping his family get him out of the equation because if had, he stayed in that house. He was insisting and demanding that he was going to continue to stay there. Even if they moved everything out, he said he was going to sleep on the ground. Right? right. And I've been there. Like, I understand that. I know that mentality is like, uh, you know, that Tupac mentality, like woke up screaming, fuck the world. Like I, I, I get it. Like the guys, he's not, uh, he's in full flight from reality. He needs yeah. help and he right. doesn't even know it. And he's, he's not done. So this is what my world is now. It's what my life consists of. I, I, um, you know, one the reason I started doing TikToks is my buddy was really huge on TikTok and he was huge in, in, to getting people into TikTok. I really wasn't down for it, but what happens now is I go on there and film tons of videos weekly. Um, I do a lot of YouTube stuff too, a lot of podcasts. I've taken a two month uh, break because we were moving, but um, but my TikToks are continual. And I get a lot of messages from youngsters, oldsters, middlesters, people from all across the country from all over the world that are struggling with addiction. Right. there's you know fentanyl's fentanyl's running rampant. I'm always trying to talk somebody through something or help somebody who doesn't know how to talk to their family member. It's just become a way of life. sometimes it's draining, you know but right. but uh, but I think that God put me in I know you know. You know, God put me in this position. God put you in that position. And I, I think um, at the end of the day, as long as we're doing, we're being a maximum service, doing God's work and just helping people, then we good.
1: We good. Absolutely. Yeah, And I got to learn how to do TikToks better. I'm not that good at it. So I give you credit Man. for your, I love your TikToks. <laughs> um, but thank you for sharing that with us, Pej. Um, Because people have to know that, and I, I, me, myself, are like you right we're out here to try to break that stigma of right not every drunk is the guy sitting down with a brown paper bag or the junkie with a needle stuck in their arm sometimes it's people you would least think that are suffering from addiction right and like you you know i I just try to help as many people as i can right because god got me sober for a reason he put guys like pez in my life for a reason who are doing the same thing Right. Because I get to live in purpose on purpose today because of that. Right. Um, Right. So I appreciate you coming on and doing the show. Uh, But there's a couple of questions I like to ask my guests. Right. Before we part and go our separate ways and do our God's work, as you called it. Um, First one is, what does fearless mean to you, Pej? And how does that look and what does that look like on your your daily your daily what does it look like in your daily life
2: to be fearless on a daily basis means god's got to be in charge i cannot uh i think the only time i i experience a little bit of fear is when when financial insecurities um kind of start to rear its ugly face again um but i i got i have to remember that so if i live in fear it defeats the purpose of the reason of why I came into recovery in the first place. Yep. hundred forms of fear, thousand forms of fear. When I was out there, I was afraid to get better. I was afraid to take a look at myself, you know, yeah. at, like in a, in a mirror under a, under a lens. I was afraid to seek help. I did the thing I feared the very most was to ask for help. So when I come in here and help is afforded to me by so many different people, God is sprinkling so many different people in my path, some that I'm supposed to help and some that are supposed to help me. And I don't want to get it twisted. Right. The ones I think I'm I'm helping are actually helping me. So the more I do God's work, the less I sit in fear or anxiety or... And I'm allowed to speak on anxiety and depression because I used to be a depressive fool and I used to be like totally anxiety ridden. Yeah. And I know that um chuck c said the measure of your anxiety is the measure of your distance from god and so if i if i keep god in the driver's seat and i keep the recovery program in the front seat i get to go along in the back seat for a ride this one's sitting shotgun this one's driving a car and right. i just get to go on this journey right so yeah i don't need to be fear, fearful i need to be fearless
1: right which means just fear less right and do as we as we were taught right do the next right thing always right
2: that's right always
1: the three principles and it's all what we live by is right always be authentic surrender the results and always do the hard work always always Always. and um and uh we will be blessed in which we have right because i've seen you grow so much since we've worked together you know and we've remained friends and that to me is the biggest blessing of them all that we've stayed friends and i get to watch you grow and, and help so many people because so my next question is, is happiness, right? As you can see, put a Y in it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people say you spell it wrong. And I said, there's a reason for it. So what does happiness, knowing I put the Y in there, mean to you? And how does that show up in your life?
2: You know, there, I sometimes hear these people that, that come up with these philosophies that like happiness is some, not something that you achieve or that you're supposed to get. And I, to- I, don't, I don't agree with it. I don't like personally, it is something that I had to like get on the other end of my addiction. The reason I did drugs and alcohol is because they made me feel good, which would make me feel happy. And the reason that I was doing this is because deep down inside, it was deep rooted is because I didn't feel good. So I needed something to make me feel happy to get on the other end of that and be in recovery I wake up in the top of the morning and I go throughout my day. I do not experience depression anymore. I do not experience anxiety except for those five five years ago when I got cancer for a minute. There was a few days where there was some anxiety. But again, I had to bring God into the equation. I'm a happy person. I'm known for my smile. I've known for my dimples. Some people (laughs) may judge me for, for being too happy. Some people may judge me for being a certain way. I don't care
1: right
2: I'm happy with who I am I'm happy with what i do uh, if i'm if I'm trying to be the best version of myself if I come short, I can clean up where I mess up yeah even that makes me happy that if i if I promptly admit to somebody I was wrong to treat you like that, I get happy because whether they forgive me or not, I'm content I clean my side of the street I keep going right. I have a Beautiful relationship with a woman that makes me happy every single day, and I believe I make her happy. And I say that very confidently because she's the best woman I've ever met in my life. Right. True soulmate, right? My mother's not worried about me, like, mm-hmm. she, you know, ducking and dodging the poor woman. My dad and I, all we do is laugh. That guy was like a violent tyrant growing up, and he's not even that anymore, right? right. And then on top of that, like, I, the, the people that call me um, on a daily basis and we'd be, shooting the shit or just spitting recovery to each other, they make me happy. When I go into meetings and I hear a good share, I'm happy. If somebody shares something shitty that makes me unhappy, I look at myself and think, well, what part of that is that affecting you? What can you do to go and like and make the situation happy? Maybe go afterwards and talk to that person and see where their head's at and meet them where they're at and, and then understand like when you're judgmental of them, there's actually something within yourself that you're judging yourself about.
1: Right. Right, because what they say, you're pointing one finger, you got three pointing back at you. So that's right. That's right. I love that definition. So thank you for that. And by the way, next Tuesday I will be in Orange County because I'm gonna come down early and take chips with my son, who's two years sober now. And my daughter will be 90 days sober. So uh, I'll 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 call you when I'm down there. Maybe we could uh, get please a please do.
2: The, the, hearing those things makes me happy. Oh, yeah, please I call can. me.
1: I will. Um, I'd love to see you when I'm gonna uh, come down there. So I
2: always would love to see you.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you again for coming and doing the show. But what I like to do is so, Pej, if my audience, anyone out in my audience, needs your services, your help, your intervention services, your sober coaching, how do they get a hold of you?
2: Many different ways. The easiest way is to call me at 310 596 9356. That is my intervention line. Um, you can also send me a message on Instagram. It's drug, all lowercase, drug underscore intervention. Um, that's another really easy way of getting a hold of me. Uh, on Facebook, I am under the name Pejman. Uh, my full name is actually Pejman, but I just split it into Pejman, you don't want the last name. So you can send me a <laughs> message there. Um, you know, uh, But either way, my phone number would be the easiest way to get a hold of me.
1: Uh, awesome. If not, I'll get you to them, everybody. If anybody needs that kind of help. I'll just reach out and um, I'll, I'll get you to Pej. So there's one last thing. I know I keep saying this. The one last thing I like to do with my guests is, so Pej, what is one piece of advice you could give my audience that would help them grow as a human being and become a better person?
2: I think every single human being is given the opportunity, if they are in their right mind, to be able to find themselves. If you don't have meaning in your life, you're living a meaningless life. Mm-hmm. It's about finding your purpose. What is your purpose? How are you being of service? Service is, for me, the answer to good living. If you look at the, the most peaceful humans and creatures on earth were the ones that did service or con- are, are currently doing service. So I don't care if you go to church, if you go to agape, if you go and mm-hmm. feed people, the homeless on Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. on the streets of Skid Row or Orange County, whatever. Just find your purpose get out of self when we're selfish and self-centered we're only thinking about ourselves and we're grappling our ego and we're we're out helping people we're we're doing you know god's bidding and if you don't believe in god it's okay like i know a lot of atheists that are that are doing god's work and they don't really even think that they are (laughs) right i know
1: a couple of those too well thank you page man it's been great having you here man i love you bud um love you too thank you until next time, everybody, um, if you if the show made you think, made you grow, made you laugh, give me a review over on iTunes so people can find it. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Thank you, brother. Have a good one.